We start with BC gas prices. Now, I'm getting a lot of emails from listeners here the last couple of days complaining about the price at the pump. Let's discuss now with my guest, Dan McTeague, President, Canadians for Affordable Energy. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hey, Dan. Good to be here, Mike. Thanks for having me. Dan, thanks a lot for coming on. What's the deal with gas prices in BC right now? What's the latest? Are they on the rise? Oh, they've been on the rise. They're going to drop off maybe a penny or so, but uh, what's happening in BC is a reflection of what's happening uh, right across Canada, right across North America, well, right around the world. I mean, oil's gone from 50 bucks a barrel at the beginning of the year all the way up to about 62 bucks a barrel. Uh, there is every expectation that as vaccines roll out in the United States, demand is starting to pick up. In fact, the U.S. Department of Energy just came out with its report this morning saying that demand is up 10% week over week. Uh, that's a pretty significant number. So things are starting to roll. And with it, of course, uh, the economy uh, does use fuel. Uh, so I know some people yeah. don't like to hear that. But the reality is that, that it does. And as the economy, uh, you know, slowly but surely makes its way out of uh, this COVID era, uh, we're likely to see very strong demand and uh, yeah. refineries as well as uh, oil producers uh, trying to play catch up. Uh, of course, the timing isn't great. Texas, the largest uh, supplier, uh, put all its eggs in one basket with electrical uh, Renewables uh, now found itself in the midst of a freeze, and about 30% of its production was knocked offline. So all these things have really might have contributed to why we're seeing a, a really okay. significant price spike, such that uh, what I told your colleague uh, Janet Brown a couple of weeks ago, that we could be seeing a dollar seventy. And uh, oh. reiterate that with Linda Seal, a summer isn't uh, out of the extraordinary. One forty nine nine top end here in Vancouver. Okay, a buck seventy. Oh, that's painful. Uh, BC, it's particularly painful here in British Columbia. We got the highest <laughs> gas prices in Canada, right? Yeah, and highest taxes in North America. Yes. Yeah, highest in North America. Um, it, it, how much does that contribute to the pain here? A lot. Uh, your uh, gas taxes overall are about fifty-three cents a liter. Uh, compared to say Bellingham, uh, it's selling three nineteen a gallon. Works out to I don't know, quick calculations, but a buck six. A liter. Wow. Uh, there's a $0.31 cent a liter gap alone between Washington State and Vancouver, uh, and it probably has a lot of drivers uh, scratching their heads saying, yeah, but there's still a gap there. Uh, well, the gap is uh, what I, you and I have been talking about for a couple of years now, well before the BCUC did its uh, report. The low-carbon fuel standard accounts for about $0.13 cents a liter. So all told, government regulation, the stuff that governments don't like to talk about, carbon right. taxes, and other taxes about you're looking at about 62 63 cents a liter overall maybe even 64 65 okay. if you really want to push it okay bc premier john horgan hates being painted as the bad guy here because he's the tax man here with these huge gas taxes in british columbia but when he's asked about the huge prices for gas in british columbia he always says don't point your finger at me point the finger at those big greedy oil companies they're the ones who are gouging british columbia now let me play this here for you dan this is horgan now this this is a, a clip from some time ago where i but i know his opinions have not changed here he is going after the oil companies and saying they're gouging BC. Have a listen. Gas prices went up nine cents overnight. That's not a tax question. That's a gouging question. And uh, I've raised this uh, with the federal government. We've certainly talked about it inside government here. Uh, when you see that type of an increase in the price of a liter of gasoline, it's not about taxation. I know that there are those that would like to make that the argument, but clearly there's, there's not a connection between the commodity price, a, a barrel of oil, 
and the price of the pumps. Okay, it was not that long ago, Dan, that the Horgan government here in BC had a public inquiry into gas prices and they promised to set up a website to reveal all the oil companies' dirty secrets about how they're gouging people. Uh, the oil companies are fighting that in court, so we haven't really seen what the government promised here. But what, what, how do you react when you hear that, when you hear the premier of B.C. saying these, these companies are gouging us? Well, he's never obviously heard of retail margins, and that's what happens. You have these retail uh, gas stations playing gas bar shenanigans. They have about $0.08 cents a litre to play with. So sometimes they start in the morning at 149.9, they'll drop by the evening to 141. Everyone in Vancouver knows that, except apparently the premier. Uh, what you're seeing here with the nine cent might be eight cents on the retail margin, which goes up the next morning but comes down by the next afternoon, plus the one cent increase that we've seen incrementally over the past uh, month or so. Where prices, uh, if I go back to the beginning of February, Mike, prices were about a buck thirty-seven a liter at the high end. They're now a dollar forty-nine. There's been a twelve cent wholesale price plus tax increase. What makes this really big isn't the you know the increase, and it's easily explained, uh, except alluded by the uh, seems to be elusive uh, to your to your premier. Uh, what's missing here is when the BCUC did its report, it was told not to look into the regulatory effect. I'm not going to go through right. the whole thing again, right? But the low carbon fuel standard represents 13 cents mystery cents a liter. So when people come in and saying, "Oh, there's still 13 cents missing." Folks, look at the BCUC's mandated uh, fourth quarter uh, carbon credit. It's $325 to $380 a ton. Guess what, Mike? That's 13 cents a liter. Uh, it's right in front of the premier and in front okay. of the critics. For goodness sakes, read your own documents. Okay, Dan, I'm speaking to Dan McTague from Canadians for Affordable Energy. I'm taking a look at a headline uh, this morning in the Toronto Star, and it says, Will Aaron O'Toole embrace a carbon tax some of his mps are worried that he will it says sources here telling the star aaron o'toole uh, getting set to move the conservative party toward accepting a carbon tax you re kidding me the con federal conservatives are going to go carbon tax here what do you think of that well i think he can but mr o'toole shared my former writing uh he also asked me to run in 2019 by the way uh, he's dead wrong. Yeah, you're a, for, you're a former MP, just to remind the listeners about Order, that. Former yeah. liberal MP. Right, yes. <laughs> this is on the former. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but yes, yeah, <laughs> no, I think if, if this is in fact correct, and I'm going to give uh, the benefit of the doubt to the uh, to the leader, uh, trying to mimic the federal liberals in the next election will get him zero votes. It will cost him votes, not just out in western Canada. Here I'm talking Alberta, Saskatchewan, uh, interior B.C., He's going to lose votes in my old area, the 905. And by the way, I represent the 905, the area that built around the 416, all for almost two decades. And I worked in yeah, that area. Yeah, that's like suburban, suburban Toronto you're talking about. You got it. And they're the ones that voted for Doug Ford, the only guy who actually, in this province, rejected the carbon tax. And he won, of course, with the landslide. There's a number of reasons for that. But I think this would be a fatal mistake for Mr. Uh, Mr. O'Toole. Uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, but I'm putting my political antennae and taking off my energy expertise uh, for this moment and i would say that if he does that uh his time as a leader of that party will be uh, nasty brutish and of course short <laughs> okay dan thanks a lot for coming on today great to be here mike have a great day Cheers. all right same to you dan mctague there he's the president of canadians for affordable energy
Okay, welcome back to the show. Let's dig into BC's new vaccine plan now, especially the decision by Dr. Bonnie Henry to extend the time between the first shot of the vaccine and the second booster shot. That will now be extended to four months, effectively quadrupling the time between the shots as recommended by the manufacturers of the vaccine. Now, BC is going to vaccinate a whole lot more people here with the first dose because of this decision. But man, you talk about a fight over this now and a controversy. You've got Canada's chief science advisor. This is Prime Minister uh, Trudeau's chief science, chief science officer, Dr. Mona Namer here, uh, taking on BC over this decision. Have a listen to what she says here about BC's plan here to delay the second shot. We don't know how the, you know, our body responds to them. We don't know how strong immunity is and how long it lasts. So I think we need to maintain some um, humility uh, in the face of this evolving science uh, and that, uh, again, to maintain public trust that we be open and transparent about the data that is being used for uh, decision-making. Okay, she called this tinkering with the timelines and a human experiment on the population of British Columbia. Now, Dr. Bonnie Henry yesterday defended her decision to delay the second dose. Have a listen. The UK is using a similar time frame to what we are, and they have extended uh, the interval between first and second doses and have from the very beginning. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Jason Tetro. He's a microbiologist with a specialty in emerging pathogens like COVID-19. Of course, he's the host of the Super Awesome Science Show, which I highly recommend to you. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hiya, Jason. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing great, Jason. So give me your thoughts. I'm dying to know what you think about this, this decision by BC to delay the second dose. You think this is a good idea? You know, I'm sort of the type of person that would say, you've got to follow the monograph. That was what was tested. That was what was approved by Health Canada. And you really need to focus on that. I've now gone back and looked at the data that Dr. Bonnie Henry's been talking about. And I have to tell you something. It has created a very interesting perspective that really comes down to this particular question. Do we want to vaccinate to get the best immune response? Or do we want to turn COVID-19 into another common cold? If we want to do the first, then you vaccinate uh, with a double dose at 21 or 28 days, and you essentially move on from there. If you want to do the latter, turning it into like a common cold, then you can actually delay it. And it's about 111 days. So four months is, is okay. Yeah. Um, but in that sense, it, it's just a different approach as to what we want to do in terms of protecting the public. Well, is there any risk to delaying the second dose? Like it was, it got huge headlines this week when Bonnie mm -hmm. Henry and other health officials said we could give everybody in BC the first shot of the vaccine by July. And you know, people were like, yeah. this is awesome. This is great. But it is, and the, and the way we're doing that is by delaying the second dose. I mean, is there any downside risk to doing that? You know, I thought that there might be because yeah. what we were, we were afraid of was that our immune response would start to wane and then it would give the virus an opportunity to get back inside of us, create more mm. variants of what we call selective pressure. But really what we've been seeing with the data is that in the first three weeks, your immune system goes right up to the top in terms of being able to protect against this virus. 
And whether you have a second dose or not, it just kind of continues on that whole path for the next three to four months. And the reason that's important is because if we do turn COVID into something that's like a common cold, then basically it's seasonal. And if we have protection over the course of one full season from one shot, then we go into a flu vaccine uh, scenario where essentially we just roll up our sleeves every year to make sure that we're protected. Okay, there's some split opinion out there among experts about whether this is the right way to go. Now, very significantly, the National Advisory Committee on Immunization, there's some reports this morning that this is an, an, an expert panel that advises the federal government on vaccines. It looks like they are getting set here to come out in support of Dr. Henry and this decision. So we're, we're watching that closely. But let me play this here for you, Jason. Get your thoughts. Uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, of course, the famous health uh, officer in the United States. Here is a comment that he made about this idea, delaying the second dose. He's speaking here to the World Economic Forum. Have a listen. Yeah, it does. It, it does. I mean, I can understand the reason why that is being done, but I would be concerned about that because you don't get full uh, efficacy until you get that second dose. And if you allow suboptimal efficacy, you could actually immunologically select more for mutations when you do that. So that's the reason why, you know, it may not be the case, but it gets risky. Okay, he says it's risky there. And he, and he's, he was using a little science lingo, but I think he was making a similar point that you made, right? About some of but the risks here. Yeah, he said exactly the same thing I said, yeah. which is that if you don't have proper immunity, then you're going to allow for uh, vi variants to form. And since we've already got a whole plethora of variants right now, why would we want to do that? Uh, the fact is, though, that if we do even have variants, but we have a baseline protection that comes from that first dose, and it just right. kind of stays with us throughout the whole season, and then we just booster it, then that might actually be more efficient, especially yeah. considering, and, and, and I hate to do this to British Columbia, but the reality is everybody seems to be dropping their cases because they've been following along. But the 20s to 40s in British Columbia just do not seem to be wanting to do that. And so it's continuing to spread the virus at a pace that yeah. is um, plateaued and doesn't seem to be coming down very fast. Yeah. So at the end of the day, you know, everybody's relying, throwing all of their eggs into a basket when it comes to vaccination. So if we take that approach, we're all basically doing the same thing. Right. I think it's kind of unfortunate that there's this sort of divided opinion among some experts about whether this is the right thing to do, because I think it creates a little uh, confusion in the minds of the public and maybe a little hesitancy on some people to, to take the vaccine, which I think is, is concerning. But I think a, Bonnie Henry has got a lot of support in the province. And when people mm -hmm. are offered this vaccine, I think we're going to see a massive take up on it. But the other thing that she's pointed out is she's saying, look, you know, you know, people are calling this an experiment. We heard Trudeau's science advisor call it an experiment. She's saying, like, no, look, this is a decision made on data. She's relying on data that we've seen yeah. with the with the rollout of the vaccine so far in British Columbia, which has been very successful in, in long term care, for example. And she's also looking at international jurisdictions, notably the United Kingdom and uh, Israel, where she says mm -hmm. there's been some, some a lot of success here. Right. With this strategy. Your thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. I've looked at the data from Israel. I've seen the data from Scotland and also from Cambridge, which is right. real, which are really the three data sources that you can look at to get a feel for what's going on here. And even if you go back and reanalyze some of the clinical trial data, you do come up with this realization that that first dose is giving you that baseline protection. Now, yeah. when the companies went for their approval, they went with the safest bet. 
So that was two doses, the second dose at either 21 or 28 days. And that's excellent because that allowed them to get the approval and to be able to move on forward. But remember one other thing. Remember how we had all this problem about Pfizer because of the cold storage we needed, the ultra low minus 80 storage? Sure. Well, you can actually store it at minus 20. But the fact is, is that they went for the safe bet. And that's basically yeah. what these other what, what these companies have done with respect to their vaccines and their clinical trials. You always go with the safest bet and right. then start to alter. It's just that normally that altering happens over three, four, five years. Now we're having to do this in a matter of right. three, four, five months. Yeah. Do you think that the reason that she's doing this, and she almost more or less said this yesterday, but the reason that they want to extend the, the time period between the two shots is because of the shortage of vaccine. I mean, if we had all the vaccine in the world, I guess maybe you could follow the rules uh, that were laid down by the drug companies, and that would be great. But when you've got a limited supply of vaccine, she's kind of making do with the, the, you know, trying to make the best of the best, a bad situation in a way. Do you think? Yeah, I know. And, oh. and the reason I say no is this. Um, if she had done this in early February, I would totally understand that. But we're now in March, and we have uh, hundreds of thousands of doses that are coming from both Pfizer and Moderna, and we've got another 500,000 coming from AstraZeneca. We don't need to worry about shortages anymore because everything is flowing along. So why okay. introduce this now? And so as a result of that, I really think it's due to the data and not necessarily due to the fact that the logistics made every government look bad, not, and even though it really okay. wasn't their fault. Okay, so it's just, you, this is just the best thing, the right thing to do, in your opinion, right? Again, it, it, it's two varying um, uh, ideas as to what we want right. to do to protect ourselves and end the pandemic. The one that that she is taking is the one that's going to get us there faster. Okay. All right. Welcome back. Talking about BC's vaccine plan with my guest, Jason Tetro. Your calls to him, 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898, toll free on your cell. Let's go to Dave in Kitsilano. Hey, Dave. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, Jason. How are you, gentlemen? Good. Very well, thanks. Thank you. Hey, my question is going to be, is I'm a, an essential worker. I'm healthy for the most part. I'm age 60 years old. There's three vaccines up, possible a fourth one with Johnson & Johnson coming down the road. Now, if I were, were to be offered a shot being a healthcare worker and my family um, has immune, comp you know, they're immune compromised, is after your first shot, Pfizer and Moderna say it's got to be 39, 40 days, you know, three months or whatever. Now, Bonnie wants to go four months. Is it better to get a shot if it's offered to you or wait and see and get one later on later in the summer? Jason, uh, get it now. Yeah. Literally, the minute you get the call, stand, what, just go get the shot. That's the best thing because that's the only way we're going to be able to make sure that what Dr. Henry wants to do is put into place. Everybody's got to get at least one shot. Right. What about some people might look at the efficacy of these vaccines and say, oh, you know, the AstraZeneca vaccine is not as effective as the other ones. Are, are, will people be allowed to pick and choose? Probably not, right? Um, no, not in yeah. this particular wave. There'll probably be more waves later on. But uh, yeah. for now, 
um, I've actually even suggested how I would like to see this happening so that the people who have the weaker immune systems, either due to age or immunocompromisation, they would be the ones getting the mRNA vaccines. And then the ones who have a yeah. little bit more of a, you know, a, a stronger immune system would be getting the AstraZeneca or the Johnson sure. & Johnson when that comes out. Yeah, that makes sense. Joe and Burnaby. Hi, Joe. Hi. Hi. I just have a question about um, this real-world data that, that they keep <clears throat> speaking about. Yeah. Um, if the vaccine's only been out for, I mean, let's assume it, they started vaccinating in December. That would be December, January, February. That's 90 days. Where is the data that says it's effective for up to 16 weeks when okay. nobody in the world's been vaccinated up, you know, for okay. in the past four months? Okay, Jason. Yeah, actually, they have. Um, it, when you go back to the clinical trials that actually led to these uh, vaccines getting approved, um, there were longer periods of time where people went without uh, a second dose. And so hmm. in that light, what we've seen is that uh, going on to, uh, well, f for that, it was three months. And now we're sort of looking at it and we're following along. And it seems to be going even longer than that. The idea of going four months is a little bit of an extrapolation because 111 days is the longest that I have seen where it was only one dose. But by the same respect, um, I think they're just saying the, the four months uh, sort of as, as a round number. I, I think 111 days might make people wonder and scratch their heads. Okay, let's go to Ricky on the island. Hey, Ricky. Uh, it just makes me shake my head. No wonder we get conspiracy theorists. We've just spent the last year where Henry and the NDP government have placed the whole thing on. We just don't know. So we have to lock down. We just don't know. All of a sudden, we're going to follow the science that they always use that term. And it says right on the bottle that you need to readminister this in 30 days. So all of a sudden, Bonnie Henry's way smarter than the manufacturers and, what, maybe just wants to make a name for herself so her book sells better that she's currently writing? Pretty standard okay. for a leftist. Okay. okay, Ricky. Jason, what do you think of that? Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, that sounds wonderful. And it's such a great complaint. But here's the idea. When you go for a clinical trial, you actually have to specify what you want to do. And that comes into play based on what we call preclinical or animal data. And that's the reason why they went for the two shots. Now, if they had decided that based on, say, some of the work that they'd done before they got into clinicals, that one dose with a longer extension be between two doses was actually better, that's what they would have gone for. That's what we would have had in terms of approvals. So you have to remember something. Um, when, we when we talk about what is approved and what's in the monograph, and I'm always for the monograph myself, you want to be able to make sure that you're following what was tested. However, these phase four real world, whatever you want to call them, datas, post markets, um, they will show you something else. Now, normally what ends up happening is that that turns into a new clinical trial that then goes for approval and it's made. But because there is such an emphasis on this particular virus and this particular pandemic and everybody wants it to be over, well, yeah. we're going to do a little bit of thinking in advance based on what the data is telling us. And you it has think nothing that, to do with books. And, and besides, think, I would prefer you buy my book instead. <laughs> okay. But you think this is the best way to get out of this thing, to get, to get out of it quickly, to do what she's doing? Uh, based on what I've been seeing from the data that's coming out, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, because okay. if we get everybody that first dose, it's going to give you that baseline level of protection, and it's going to okay. essentially turn COVID into something like the common cold. Okay, Jason, you got 30 seconds in Nanaimo. Go ahead. Um, hi, I'm just curious. I used to live in Walkerton, Ontario, when they had the E. coli crisis, and we were all on antibiotics, mm -hmm. different ones. 
And people that were treated with one antibiotic were kind of uh, stereotyped against, like they had leprosy because they didn't have what people thought were the ultimate uh, remedy for it. I'm kind of wondering, with us coming into a world where it's likely that we're going to have to prove that we've been vaccinated to travel and fly on airplanes, if we don't have the proper dose done properly, as per the instructions by, say, Pfizer, AstraZeneca, or Johnson & Johnson, Jay- who's to say that people in B.C. won't be stereotyped against, even going like, Jason, ten, the border to Alberta? Ten seconds, Jason. Right now, we are going to be going with whatever the European Union is saying, but they actually are looking forward to doing the one dose as well. So I don't think we need to worry about that right away. Jason, thanks for coming on. Hey, it was a pleasure. It's time for Baldry's Beat. Keith Baldry, Legislative Bureau Chief for Global News. Good morning, Keith. Happy hump day. Everybody's talking about the interval between Mm -hmm. the first shot of the vaccine and the second booster shot. Bonnie Henry recommending we're going to go to a four-month interregnum period there between the shots uh divided opinion on it but it seems like she's starting to get more support for the idea right yeah i don't think there's actually much division uh well, trudeau's science officer calling it a human experiment and she's all by herself uh now oh. you've got other governments are coming on board alberta and ontario are about to follow the lead we've got check out global online uh, coverage and other stations the number of uh, infectious disease specialists now who are coming out saying the same thing the science supports the four-month interval you're going to see this as, as we predicted yesterday on the show this is going to be the new standard because the science supports it and people say well we don't have a four-month study that's not the point the point is the, the data that's come out and continues to come out around the world uh, supports the thesis that the dose is very eff- the first dose is very effective. Pfizer compressed their, their their testing into a relatively short period of time. They needed that vaccine approved very quickly, which is great for them. But since Pfizer's uh, clinical trials of you know a relatively small number of people, we've literally had millions of people get the dose and millions of bits of data to, to be analyzed to show how strong. It okay, is. well let me play this for you because I don't think that science off Trudeau science office is necessarily all alone on this. I mean, I've heard some other expert opinion on it. Let me play one for you. This is Dr. Lena Wen. She is a medical analyst, uh, former chief health commissioner in the city of Baltimore. She is on CNN all the time on vaccines. And here's what she says about this idea of delaying the second dose. The studies were conducted for both Pfizer and Moderna with the second dose given within three weeks or four weeks, depending on, um, on the vaccine. And the key is to follow the science. We don't know what happens, how long the immunity lasts. We don't know how complete that protection is. We don't know what happens if you get the second dose several weeks after or several months after when it was initially attended. And I think there is enough vaccine hesitancy and concern in this country. The last thing that we want to do is to add more unnecessary concern. Okay, so, you know, she's worried. She's a TV commentator. Well, uh, she's a former she's a former medical health officer, yeah, commissioner well, in a major si- U.S. city. Other scientists are coming out by the droves looking at the data now uh, that suggests that uh, this is an acceptable interval. And again, the United States is not a thing to compare to Canada. They've got so much vaccine down there. It's not a concern to them. For this. They can put enough second doses in the arms of people where it's, it's a, sort of an apples and oranges well, comparison. Well, is that why Bonnie Henry is doing that? Because... We're trying is, to- is she doing it? Here's the, here's the thing I'm wondering. Is she doing this because we've got an, uh, a disrupted vaccine supply in the past and we'd like to have more vaccine than we've got and that's why we're doing this? We're making, we're making do with what we got? Or is she doing this because it's just the right thing to do? 
Well, I think it's the right thing to do because we're trying to get as many very effective first doses in the arms as as many people as possible. The argument is, is it better to have 90% of the population with one dose by by July or is it better to have 40% of the population with two doses? Okay. And I think the public health argument, the science argument, it's better to have as many first doses as possible. Okay. Some people, like notably Trudeau science officer, called this a human experiment, but Dr. Bonnie Henry is saying... No, we're we're doing this based on data, right? So this is not just a stab, at, a stab in the dark. So NACI, which is the National Advisory uh, Committee on Immunizations, is uh, supporting this, according to the Global Mail, using their sources. Our colleague Justin Hunter has a piece in the in the. Yes. my information from my sources in the health is that is exactly what NACI is about to do. Now they're an advisory committee; they're not they don't make the rules; they just advise, and they're going to advise the a very important committee. And people follow NACI because it's right. basically all the experts are on NACI. Now you got Alberta and Ontario saying they want to follow the lead here as well. So yeah, science. Uh, there's more scientists and medical and experts, yeah. infectious disease experts, backing this approach than there are not. Right. It does seem like the train is going down the tracks here on this thing. So here's Dr. Bonnie Henry uh, talking about this. She said, "Look, this is the right call to make on the data that we got." Here she is. We are confident in the decisions we've made right now, and we're going to know a whole lot more by the time we get to uh, June and July. Okay, the upside of this is we vaccinate a whole lot more people very yeah. quickly. Yeah, so right now, if you see what's happening in long-term care homes, uh, 95% of the people who live and work in long-term care have received the vaccine. Many of them have had two doses, but mo- everyone's had one dose. The number of infections has just dropped off uh, the cliff. It's just not happening, and that that's part of the data. And that's also happening in other jurisdictions as well, which is why we're trying to get as much as this first dose, which is very strong, into the arms of as many people as possible to stop the infections, to stop the hospitalizations and the deaths. Let's talk about the trivia night, uh, the famous trivia night at the pub in in Port Moody, where a lot of people got sick with COVID. At the St. James's Well Irish Pub, they had the tacos and trivia night a few weeks ago. People may have heard about the uh, how it turned into a super spreader event. You got new information on that, right? Well, uh, Fraser Health uh, put out a really neat infographic, which shows what happened here. One person walks into the pub uh, and is positive with the virus, infects 28 people there. They yeah. leave the pub and they go to different uh, destinations. Two of them are daycare workers. They go to their daycare and infect 27 people, who then in turn infect 15 more people. Eight people go to different workplaces, two industrial sites, two offices, a restaurant and a store. A number of people are infected there. Ten uh, have close contacts. One school is uh, infected an entire class house to isolate. At the end of the day, that one person walking into that trivia night, which is actually against the law, you're not supposed to have events, ends up, and this is the chain effect, the dominoes, 296 people get sick, have to self-isolate, stay off work, stay out of school for two weeks. That's but they're the not effect. shutting down the pubs, though. Not shutting down the pubs. Well, that's one, uh, not yet. But I think um, the prospect of that happening, I think, is diminishing as we get closer to uh, a combination of warmer weather and more and more people getting vaccinated. Shows you how quickly, though, this can spread from exactly. one event. And that's why, that's why events are banned right now. Yeah. Okay, let me uh, ask you about one other uh, item that we talked about earlier on the show here, and that is the potential for Aaron O'Toole, the federal conservative leader, to do a bit of a 180 flip-flop here and possibly endorse a federal carbon tax. There's some speculation that he might do that, and also some speculation that some of his, his own MPs might be very unhappy about it. I spoke to Dan McTague on the show earlier today. He's a former liberal MP, now the head of Canadians for Affordable Energy, and here was his take on it. Mr. O'Toole shared my former riding. Uh, he also asked me to run in 2019, by the way. 
Uh, he's dead wrong. Now you're a, for, you're a former dead. MP, just to remind the listeners about former, that. Former yeah. liberal MP. Right, <laughs> yes. This is on the former. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but yes, no, I think if, if this is in fact correct, and I'm going to give uh, the benefit of the doubt to the, uh, to the leader, uh, trying to mimic the federal liberals in the next election will get him zero votes. It will cost him votes, not just out in western Canada. Here I'm talking Alberta, Saskatchewan, uh, interior BC. Okay, your take on O'Toole. Well, you know, our colleague Andrew Coyne in the Globe and Mail today has a great column on O'Toole. The headline is, uh, Aaron O'Toole has to pick a lane. He's trying to have it both ways. He's trying to appeal to the social conservative, the raw red meat uh, part of the caucus. He's also trying to appeal to the sort of true blue uh, classic conservative part of the caucus who don't agree on a lot of issues. And uh, he's getting squeezed. He's getting squeezed by by the right and he's getting squeezed by Trudeau. And he, he has to pick a lane and it's v- proving very hard and elusive for him. Well, to he's got to move to the center, doesn't he, if he wants to beat Trudeau? Well, he, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think he does because I don't think there's enough votes out there on the right. But he's worried about alienating his, his right-wing base. And uh, again, it's it's a very difficult well, a carbon, a carbon tax would be a good way to alienate yeah. his base. Well, and the problem is that the party has shrunk. It's now a party oh. of Alberta and Western Canada. It's trying to f- find a way to get into urban Toronto, urban Vancouver. Perhaps a carbon tax is the way to do that, but... You embrace a carbon tax there, you may lose your support in the seats where you're strongest right now, and you end up with nothing. All right, it's Baldry's Beat. There's lots of phone calls. Let's go right to them. Dave and Mission. Hey, Dave. Hello. Hi. Uh, uh, I'm a uh, snowbird, and if, they're, uh, if I don't get my vaccination until July or August, and they're holding it off for four weeks or four months after that, uh, if they open up the borders, I'll be down south. Well, then don't go. <laughs> if you want your second <laughs> dose. Now, you can, you can also, if they do open the borders, and I think that's a remote possibility, but it could happen. Um, there are Canadians right now who go to the United States and, and get a vaccine. And they, get the, they got lots of vaccine lots in the United vaccine. States. So you can, oh. I mean, if you want your second dose um, and you go to the States, and if you can get down there, uh, it's possible. I actually know some people have done that. I know people yeah. have gone down and got vaccinated. I mean, Joe Biden was out yesterday saying that they're going to have enough vaccine for everybody in the United States by May. Yeah, they've got a domestic supplier. I mean, that's yeah. that's the beauty of having domestic supply. We're at the mercy of uh, Pfizer and Moderna, which are not based in Canada. Let's go to Robert in Parksville. Hey, Robert. Yeah, good morning. Uh, quick question regarding um, what Henry said the other day and uh, essential workers being vaccinated at the same time as older people. Quick question. Uh, 20-year-old grocery bagger going to get vaccinated at the same time as a 60-year-old woman? Or... What kind of mess is that going to, uh, you know, uh, create? Are you going to have to show that you work at a place, ID? How are mm-hmm. they going to do that over the phone? What kind mm-hmm. of screening is there going to be? Yep. Um, I'll Thanks. hang up and you can listen to it. Thank you for the call. All good questions. Uh, we hope to get yeah. some answers to that on Friday. Uh, really, now with AstraZeneca coming in in a relatively yeah. short period of time, those questions have to be answered relatively quickly. Now, a gro- 20-year grocery store uh, clerk, I don't think they're going to be on the very front of the queue here. I think we're talking first responders, probably teachers, commercial truck operators because they supply the, the uh, supply chain, um, and other um, non-essential health. She workers. mentioned uh, workers in specifically vulnerable industries like poultry pr- yeah, production food, plants. Food, food processing plants will likely yeah. be up there. A uh, 20-year-old grocery clerk, I don't think it'll be in the first wave Although, of that. interestingly enough, though, in, in an earlier iteration of the plan, they did have they, they grocery were, store workers They listed. were part of it. So, yeah, if you go back, the initial plan was not to do it based on age. It yeah. was based on age for the older group, 
over 80, but then it would get into uh, very broadly defined essential service workers. And we're going back to that with AstraZeneca, but we're remaining on the age base with Pfizer. And but Missouri. she has not ruled out moving up essential workers in the queue, but hasn't specifically outlined exactly how that's going well, to happen. Well, she basically indicated they will move up in the queue, but okay. they're going to get AstraZeneca. They're going to yeah. be offered AstraZeneca. Let's put it that way. Let's go to Benny in Abbotsford. Hey, Benny. Yeah, we need to stop nitpicking and bickering over whether we get one shot or two shots uh, uh, four months from now. We need to get this show on the road. We need to vaccinate as many people as possible, just like your guest said. One shot is better than no shots, and we need to get this going so, so we can get back to normal life. I'm sick and tired of, of listening to the news media. You know, all they talk about is whether or not we should go ahead with, with this vaccine. Let's follow Bonnie Henry and... And let's all get vaccinated. Okay. Okay, no, Benny. Benny. Thanks, Benny. Benny and the Jets. Another cup of coffee. He's fired up <laughs> like a jet. But he's right. Psychologically, uh, people want as many people vaccinated as quickly as possible. And well, that's, you know, Bonnie Henry would love to hear this because this is what she has in mind, right? Like, let's get going. Let's get going. Now, again, yeah. we're at the mercy of foreign manufacturers. We want... Uh, we've got Trudeau promising a million doses arriving soon, but let's see it. Uh, but I do think uh, the, the pendulum has swung now yes. over to seeing pe- uh, vaccines come in. There was some real un- un- some uh, uh, sort of hesitancy or un- cl- not, a lack of clarity, put it that way, a couple of weeks ago, whether we're going to get those big doses, but they seem okay. to be coming in. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 in your cell. Don in Vancouver. Hi, Don. So my comment is about Trudeau. Uh, listen, uh, you know, we need another party that is more centric. Uh, O'Toole's got to shed the guys on the right. We, there's no other viable choice. Like, uh, there's a lot of us that are fed up with Trudeau, but we have nobody to choose to choose from. So I think uh, O'Toole, you know, moving more to the center is going to create a new base for him. Uh, maybe um, take more from the center. Okay, thanks for the call. Well, well, O'Toole did move to get rid of Derek Sloan, yep. who was on the kind of the right fringe of the party, and so he has made these sort of moves to the center. But the, every the time he moves to the work. every time he moves to the center, he takes another step back to the right, and this is uh, the problem with him is he's trying to have it both ways. And I think there's more votes in the center. There's more more votes to be had in um, Greater Toronto. Uh, Metro Vancouver, but he's competing with the Liberals there who are really moving center-left. I think he's in a real difficult position. I mean, if you take a look at the opinion polls right now, I mean, this is why Trudeau, I think, secretly wants this election, is going to try and find a way to trigger it. Until we get enough vaccines. If the vaccine really starts to ramp up here, as promised, I I think we're probably into an election campaign. Mike in Maple Ridge. Hey, Mike. Hey, guys. I love your show. Um, I really have to agree with uh, Benny and the Jets there. Yeah, okay. Um, (laughs) Uh, my my question is, or state issue is, that it never ceases to amaze me that uh, there are people um, who have absolutely no science or medical background second-guessing Dr. Bonnie Henry, uh, her staff, and her World Health contacts. Um, I'm really surprised that all of a sudden everybody has a degree in science and medicine. I My, my <laughs> advice would be, Come on, folks, just let her do her job. Well, Dr. Mona, thank you for the call. Dr. Mona Namer is is uh, not exactly uh, an amateur. She's the chief science officer to advisor to the prime minister. But she's not an epidemiologist. One thing I've discovered early on, I remember er, very early on, the emergency room doctors at Royal Columbian challenged all the public health 
uh, issues that were uh, protocols that were coming out. And the doctors of BC got involved and said, you know, knock it off. You're not an epidemiologist. There's different specialties. You don't see epidemiologists criticize heart surgeons. Let's go. He's got a minute left. Elaine in Victoria. Hi, Elaine. Got to go quick. Uh, just sort of speaking to that last person that talked about the emergency room doctors. Yeah. I just feel that the emergency doctors that have been cut off from this vaccine, second vaccination is completely unfair. I don't think it's right. I appreciate what she's doing, but I think anybody that's going to be within a foot of a COVID patient should have mm. every protection that they have well, available. Thank, thank you, Elaine. Thank you, Elaine. You're 20 seconds. Yeah, they are covered in, the, in this wave right now. Of, uh, but she's saying, don't, she's saying don't make them wait for the second dose. And they're not waiting. So that group is already in the vaccination they're already queue. Got, that's, okay. they're, that, we're talking completely different. Thanks a lot. All right, welcome back to the show. Here we go now with BC's new tenant protection laws. John Horgan's BC government, once again, standing up for renters. The government will extend the current rent freeze in the province through the end of this year. No rent hikes in 2021. Also, the government moving to stop illegal renovictions of tenants. Okay, let's talk about this now. We've assembled an excellent panel for you. We got both sides of it here. David Hutniak, uh, pleased to welcome him back. He's the CEO of Landlord BC. Hi, David. Hi, Mike. Thanks again for coming on. Also on the line, Mazdak Arabnavez, spokesperson for the Vancouver Tenants Union. Pleased to welcome him back to the show as well. Mazdak, thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. Mazdak, let me go to you first. You must be pleased from what you, with what you're hearing from the government. Your take. So, um, you know, we heard about the the extension of uh, freeze on rent increases. This was an election promise, and we're not surprised by its introduction. Um, in Ontario, they have similar measures right now, and so it's it's a pretty low bar to clear when uh, claiming to be helping tenants. But uh, in our opinion, unless this policy is in conjunction with other policies, um, it's not going to be enough to get uh, tenants through this crisis. Um, the renovation stuff is a bit more of a mixed bag that, uh, we can dive into as well. Okay. David Hutniak, the rent freeze, I guess that didn't surprise you either. Uh, no, we weren't surprised by it because as Mazdik just mentioned, it was, uh, promised in the uh, election campaign, but, uh, sure. I mean, um, it's challenging times for, for everybody, not just uh, renters. Um, multiple sectors and citizens are, are struggling through the pandemic. But, uh, you know, in terms of our sector, you know, this will mean that for uh, many landlords, they, in fact, will, you know, not have an opportunity to provide any uh, sort of expense recovery for actually over two years. And our taxes right. are going up, insurance costs, et cetera. So, so that's problematic. And on the the reno uh, renovation changes, I mean, those are something that we support. We were, you know, provided input through through a consultative process, and we think that, uh, you know, there's increased transparency, and uh, we've been actually sort of advocating for some of these changes uh, for a period of time. So we think it's a very positive move in that regard. Let me, let me play this here for you, David. This is Spencer Chandra Herbert, who is the cabinet minister responsible. He was on yesterday with Linda Steele. And Linda just asked him straight up, are you trying to stop landlords from making a profit? Here's what he said. Uh, you know, I think the goal is more affordable rental housing, more renovated rental housing, more good rental housing that's fair for everybody. And, you know, we've 
I think in the last year we've seen more housing units coming out the the door being built uh, than we did under the old rules under the former government. Okay, I guess more housing is always a good thing. But David, I mean, I talk to landlords, you talk to them more than I do, obviously, and, and they often tell me, like, this is just becoming a sort of a, a very difficult business for us to be in. And maybe a lot, some people might just throw their hands up and say, we're out of here. Just not do this anymore. Your thoughts? Well, I mean, you know, it is more challenging for some in our sector than others. I mean, obviously, uh, scale, you know, provides some immunity from, uh, uh, you know, some of the impacts of these changes and certainly, you know, the, the impacts of the uh, pe- pandemic overall. Uh, but the reality is the sector is uh, disproportionately represented by, you know, small landlords, secondary market landlords. And, uh, you know, in that context, those folks, uh, you know, many of them re- rely on, on that uh, secondary suite income to maintain their own housing. So, so this, this, is, this is a challenge for them. I mean, I think it's really important to understand that. But, but more broadly, I mean, the re- reality is, Mike, uh, you know, the more regressive uh, the regulatory environment is, the less uh, investment there will be in the existing stock, which yeah. uh, much of it is very, very old. And then obviously it will, in fact, impact new, new uh, okay. rental uh, stock being built. Okay. Okay, Mazdaq, let me go to you. With the rent freeze being extended here, you just heard David say that this is going to effectively be two years without, by the time we get around to this, it'll be like two years without a rent hike for, for landlords. So at the same time that the rent is frozen, the landlord's input costs are, are not frozen, right? So they're continuing to face increased property taxes, insurance, maintenance costs, uh, especially during this pandemic. Do you have any sympathy at all for the landlord? Well, I think we should put it into perspective. You know, I'm not going to deny that there are some legitimately small landlords, uh, you know, what's called mom and pop, which is basically someone who would have uh, uh, tenants in their basement suite to to help with a mortgage on their primary residence. But we should also put into perspective what uh, David said is is just not true. Um, Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives shows that only 4% of homeowners actually fit that mom and pop uh, definition. So the vast majority of uh, landlords, uh, especially the ones that are represented by Landlord BC, are large corporations and wealthy individuals with multiple properties. That's not correct. Da- David, not what, David what do you say? That's not a true statement. Uh, with all due respect, Mazdik, you, you really don't uh, know the makeup of our membership. First of all, in British Columbia, more than two-thirds of all landlords are in the secondary market. It disproportionately represents the rental housing universe of 550,000 units. Two-thirds of our members are, are landlords in that secondary market. And uh, the mom-and-pop definition also, I think, has been skewed here. Mom-and-pop is, uh, could be someone who invested you know, their life savings uh, 50, 60 years ago into a single uh, you know, rental building with, uh, you know, five, six, 10, even 20 units, a purpose-built rental building. That is, a, that is in our view, a mom-and-pop uh, landlord. So it's, I mean, they it's represent that... a huge, huge uh, uh, proportion of rental housing, not just in B.C., but yeah. across Canada. Matt Mazdak, what do you want to say? At the end of the day, we're talking about folks who have millions of dollars in assets, and so if they are, you know, uh, really hurt by a definition to take away 35 bucks per month from them by a, a rent freeze, I think that they, they can either um, take that. It is a fact that their profit is being squeezed. Um, but, you know, if that puts folks in a position where they think that they're going to sell off an entire building because of that, 
then really that actually gives the government an, an opportunity to maybe buy those uh, buildings and turn them into um, publicly owned affordable okay. rental stock. Okay, guys, let me ask you about the rent evictions issue, and I want to play this clip here from Spencer Chandra Herbert, the cabinet minister responsible, and you're going to hear him describe illegal rent evictions here. This goes about a minute, but I think it gives a good description of what the government is concerned about here. Have a listen. Picture yourself, uh, you lived in your unit a long time. I'm going to say it was a senior, because you're a senior, uh, living there, fixed income, and paying your rent, good tenant. You wake up, you look out the door, you've got an eviction notice on it for what says a renovation. Maybe not that clear about what the renovation is. Maybe you're not an expert at construction because most folks are not. And so you believe it and you've lost your home. Turns out the landlord was really just, and I've seen it, uh, putting forward an application to move the uh, sockets on your wall, the uh, electrical sockets, by a foot. Oh my God, there's permits involved. That must mean you have to leave. Now, they had no intention of moving the electrical sockets by a foot. Uh, it just looked good on paper and seemed confusing enough that people would buy it and leave. Well, we got to stop that kind of thing because people shouldn't lose their homes. And I say home. It's not just a unit. It's not just an apartment. It's a home. It's their base in a community because somebody just thinks they can get around the rules to jack up rent. Okay, David, you heard the description of the minister there describe a, a, a rent eviction here that he, he thinks is illegal. Is there a lot of that kind of stuff going on, like a landlord going in to do like a phony renovation just to get rid of a tenant so they can charge the next tenant a higher rent? Like how much of that is going on? Well, first of all, I totally agree with the concerns that the minister have. We, in fact, you know, support the changes and we've been very, uh, we haven't been doing this about the fact that uh, you know, rent evictions, uh, the, the need to vacate a unit for, for uh, renovations is really largely an exception versus a rule. And so, you know, uh, we're, we, as much as anyone, do not want to see bad actors in the, sec- in the sector and have, uh, you know, been very uh, collaborative with the, with the province to try and mitigate those situations. Have they occurred? Absolutely. Is it really widespread? Uh, I would say no. But that's not the point. The point is that, you know, uh, we've had some players come to the market, uh, uh, you know, about a few years ago in, in particular, where I think it was particularly highlighted, whose uh, business model was to pay too much for a rental uh, building and hire bullies to go and harass and, and, and you know, chase uh, existing tenants out. That's just not acceptable. And it's, uh, and, and like I said, we, okay. we agree with the minister. Okay, Mazdaq, really quickly, David says it, it's, it, it's not going on very widespread. What do you think? Well, uh, first of all, I think the fact that David and Landlord BC, an organization that lobbied to bring back evictions at the peak of a pandemic, are on board with this, should speak volumes about what renters should expect from this law. But, uh, I mean, I'll tell you, the government didn't, uh, you know, we had 50 recommendations that we submitted um, on how to deal with this stuff. They ignored it mostly. But... uh, to be, to be frank, renovations are an egregious form of profit-making tactic. Um, it's our stance that there isn't, you know, that, that a, if upgrades are necessary, um, it should not and does not have to interfere with a tenancy agreement, period. And so this distinction, okay. this um, uh, basically they've decided to legalize and regulate renovations when we ask them to end them. 
and the fact that Landlord BC is, is on side with that, I think, uh, speaks volumes. I think it's totally unclear okay. that um, this is gonna this is gonna actually bring a, an end to rent eviction. All right, welcome back to the show. As we continue to talk about the new renter protection laws coming to British Columbia, the government announcing this week an extension of the current rent freeze in the province through the end of this year. Also, some changes to rent eviction laws in the province. we got a great panel on this, both sides of it for you. David Hutniak, Landlord BC, Mazdaq Arab Navas, Vancouver Tenants Union. Your calls to them. Let's go right to your phone calls here. Ryan in Vancouver, hi. Hi, how you doing, Mike? I'm good, go ahead. Yeah, so um, our family has had properties for over 40-some years, really great tenants and stuff like that. But this Mazdaq, I think uh, he's just like a, a loony when it comes to what he's saying. Um, we're actually getting out of the business because of what's going on. We are a member of Landlord BC. You know, we treat our tenants great, but, you know, what's going on, now there's going to be, you know, our tenants out of a home because of this. And then, it's, you know, it's not fair to the Why landlord are- that we're taking all this. Why are you getting out of it? Because of what's going on. We have no control. And then, you know, of our properties, we have no control over them anymore. It's the government that has control. And at the end of the day, these are our properties. We own these. You know, it's not the government that owns them. We do. Okay, Mazdaq, what do you you say to him? Well, I mean, I think at the end of the day, folks have to um, decide if they're a business or not. And if you are a business, it means that you're taking risks. And so if there are external factors like, I don't know, a global pandemic um, that makes it uh, that the investments that you've made are not um, giving you as much of a profit as as before, then um, then, you know, that's that's kind of the fact that it is. So so, you know, you have to decide what's going to be fair. Um, and the fact is that actually the entire cost of the pandemic is downloaded on tenants because, uh, for example, with rent debt, um, none of that was taken on by landlords. Uh, and that's, that's just well, one, one example. Well, David, what do you say to that? Because, I don't know, I've heard from a lot of landlords who say that they, they haven't seen their costs frozen, like the rents have been frozen, but your thoughts? Well, I mean, uh, you know, Ryan is, uh, I don't know who Ryan is. He's a member of Landlord BC, and it's really, really concerning to hear what he said, that his, his family is contemplating uh, getting out of, uh, you know, providing rental housing in British Columbia. We have a dearth of rental housing, and we need all, uh, all the housing we can get. I mean, at, at the end of the day, absolutely, there's a pandemic. Uh, no sector was left unscathed, and that includes uh, rental housing. So I don't uh, know that anybody, uh, certainly right. from, from our end, has ever denied that. And uh, if we look at our sector, uh, you know, more broadly, uh, by and large, uh, you know, we very actively uh, advocated with the provincial government for the renter support. We, in fact, strongly pushed for it to be higher and, to, and, and, and we're very much behind extending it to, through the end of August. We strongly uh, encourage the, the province to find a, a, a balance in terms of these uh, rent deficits that were incurred during the pandemic, and they, they did so. I think no, you know, what's Come happened on. here is there's pain for everybody, and we're obviously not insensitive to the okay. fact that renters obviously suffered as well, but so just, did landlords. Just two minutes left here. Let's squeeze in another call. Donna in New West. Hi. Hello. Well, now we have the landlords and tenants bickering amongst themselves unnecessarily. 
they get along in good times. The problem is international real estate money games with people buying properties they're not living in. And this is, has started before the pandemic. It's going to be after the pandemic. The BC government needs to protect BC people from money coming in and playing. Oh, okay. Okay. Ma- do you think, do you think offshore real estate buyers are any kind of a factor here? I think the bigger factor is really speculators in general. I think uh, the the um, the real estate market is continues to be red hot. Uh, that's going to be good news for for landlords who are trying to sell off. But really, I, I have to say, um, it is funny to hear terms like uh, housing provider being used to describe folks because providing housing is not their business model. Evicting people is their business model to jack up rent. And that's just the fact that uh, that is happening. So I don't think uh, that uh, the the caller's uh, characterization of us bickering is true. Um, we're talking about the largest corporations, the most profitable and wealthy people, continuing to okay. make profits uh, during the time of pandemic. Okay, David, we got just got thirty seconds left here. If you want to respond to that, well, again, the sector is by and large primarily uh, small landlords, secondary market landlords. Uh, the the reality is that. Uh, you know, our sector cares very much about the housing we provide. It's critically important. We take our responsibilities serious, seriously. Yes, every sector has its bad actors. Uh, certainly, uh, we have been working with government to try and address some of those issues. But uh, it's really, I think, unfair to demonize all landlords. Uh, we are, like I said, we take our responsibilities seriously. And, uh, you know, we actually work really closely with uh, uh, a variety of stakeholders, okay. profits, track, and other other tenant uh, advocates as well. So, thank you. Uh, anyway, it thank, is what it is. Thank you, David uh, Hutniak from Landlord BC and Mazda Garbnaves, Vancouver Tenants Union.